Hello and welcome to my podcast, Whisper in the Shadows, the true story of a real-life undercover cop. I'm Michael Bates and I was a police officer for 15 years in one of Australia's state police forces. I was also an undercover cop for over two years and all the episodes of this podcast are my true stories of what it's really like to be an undercover cop. Rather, I was Michael Bates. So, full disclosure, Michael is not actually my real name. It was my covert identity I used on most of my operations. Everyone has a notion of what undercover policing is all about. Whether you think they're a narc, a covert operative, a dog, or a UC, most people seem to confuse plainclothes police with being undercover. There is a very big difference though. Most plainclothes police are detectives, and they don't wear a uniform so they aren't as obtrusive in public. Undercover is completely different. You become immersed in the world with your targets. And when you were a police officer, part of your role is to investigate crimes. This means you try and find evidence to prove the person you have arrested has committed that crime. This evidence can consist of physical, verbal, video and witnesses. When you're an undercover police officer though, you are the evidence. And you are the reason someone gets convicted of the crimes. That is both exciting and dangerous. So let's get on with the next episode. Episode 4, The Informants. In today's episode, I'm going to explore the many informants that I've worked with across all of my operations. Now, their names will come up again across other episodes, but this will give a be- this episode is going to give a background into them. Now, just as a side, to protect the names of the informants, I'm not going to be using their real names, despite the fact that it's been 30 years and they nor the targets in these operations possibly listen to a true crime podcast. Also, not going to use the operation details like the internal code name. Okay, so the inevitable questions will come up. Isn't the information you're giving away going to identify these people? Well, no, I'm not going to use anything at all that is going to be able to identify them. In fact, you're probably more likely to work out who I am than who they are from the information I give. Let's also not forget that most of these people will have at some stage probably been identified anyway by the fact that when a target got arrested, they thought back to who introduced me to Michael. That's right, it was the informant themselves. I guess I've given this a lot of thought, and I don't believe I'm committing a crime by, at all by detailing this information in my operations, as most of it is in the public domain anyway. Of the four major informants I've had, I know at least three of them have died, and the fourth, I'm led to believe, had cancer, and that was nearly 25 years ago. If for some reason someone can work out who these people really are, it doesn't really have safety implications for them. As for the targets, some of them are still in jail and a number are dead, which is what you get when you use and or deal drugs. Informant, informer, snitch, rat, dog, canary, nah, fink, rat fink, grass. There are many names for someone who informs on criminal activity for or to the police. Basically, an informant is someone who secretly provides information to police or another law enforcement agency. If you watch a lot of crime shows on TV, you're probably familiar with informants. Now, the Urban Dictionary describes they are mostly previously caught wannabe drug dealers that turn rat when facing criminal charges. If executed correctly, they could get a police paycheck for their efforts. 
They don't want to face criminal charges or go to jail, so they live a life of shame. Even though they act as friends, they're just faking it to get information from someone that leads to an arrest. They could never be trusted. They are desperate to make new drug dealer friends to promptly turn them over to proper authorities. When in extremely desperate, they could even turn over their best of friends just to report a new bust. They are very dangerous. This phenom phenomenon in the war on drugs could be explained as easy busts for local law enforcement. Now, that's a bit over the top and obviously written by someone who had been busted, but you get the picture. In the world of law enforcement, informants are officially called CIs or confidential informants. The information informants provide can be useful in catching criminals. And the informant usually gets something in return, money or a reduced prison sentence, for example. Sometimes informant simply means the person who gives information. An interesting byplay of these slang names is that of narc or narc. Spelt with a C, spelt with a K. Here in Australia and in most of the English speaking world, there are two separate meanings for narc and narc. The informer, looks rather the former, is an abbreviation of, of the word narcotics officer and the latter meaning a police informant. I was a narc with a C and my informants were narcs with a K. So here's probably a good place to talk about buying and selling heroin, how it's generally sold and how someone makes money from selling it. Back in the mid nineties, heroin was sold either in a packet, as a gram, as a quarter ounce, half ounce or a full ounce or so on, um, if you were being a major supplier. An ounce of heroin is 28 grams, half ounce 14 grams and a quarter ounce is seven grams. Usually you would turn one gram into 11 $100 packets which is about 0 0.09 of a gram each. Generally, a gram was about five or $600. Quarter ounce was about three and a half thousand dollars. Half ounce, around $6,000. And an ounce, somewhere between 10 and $12,000, depending on purity and your relationship with the dealer. Time for some maths. Let's say you buy one gram of H for $600. Now you wouldn't cut that with anything because it will still have been stepped on at least once, but probably twice by the time it gets to that gram. Stepping on heroin is when you add another element, generally powder like glucose, to the heroin to make extra product. But for the gram example, we won't step on it. So you spend $600, then you make 11 $100 packets out of that gram. And it is exactly a gram. This stuff is measured and weighed precisely. That means for a $600 outlay, you have made $500. 11 times 100, $1,100 minus the $600 is your $500. But it gets better. If you buy half an ounce, which is 14 grams of heroin, and step on it, say, with seven grams of glucose powder, so half again, that gives you 21 grams, slightly lesser quality heroin. Now, that half ounce costs you $6,000. If you sell it by the gram, that is income of $12,600, which gives you about $6,500 profit. You could probably do that in a week. But if you had people dealing for you and you sold it as a $100 packet, try 21 times 11 packets at $100 each. That's 231 packets, which is $23,000. Profit of about $17,000. And if you buy an ounce, say cut it again with another 28 gram, grams of powder or cutting agent that gives you 56 grams of heroin at 600 dollars a gram which is 33 and a half thousand dollars 
Now that's a profit of about $20,000 to $23,000 for each ounce that you sell. If you had the right setup, which of course I alluded to that I did and moved this much weight, say every two weeks, that is a lot of money you are making that you needed to account for. Hello, Mr. Casino. Well, that's where a lot of the Asian drug dealers were laundering their cash, as I was informed by one of my targets, who had a massive gambling habit. I did go to the casino to be seen and try gambling and was really, really bad at it. So instead, I came up with some inventive ways of allegedly laundering the cash to give me a clean income stream if I was investigated. So you can see why some people get caught in this lifestyle, but generally it isn't the users who are making this money. Most users sell enough to keep their own habits going, not unlike many of my targets that I dealt with throughout my operations. Susan. Susan was a young girl who I actually knew very well. As with my previous operations, I first met with my controller who gave me a rundown of the informant. She'd been caught with drugs. It seems she was a prostitute and sometimes stripper. She mainly worked freelance, but had shacked up with a much older guy, think Sugar Daddy, before it was actually a thing. Now, when I say Sugar Daddy, he lived in a caravan in the dodgy van park on the outskirts of the outer suburbs of the city. It was, his, it was his influence that had led her to becoming an informant. He said he wanted her to clean herself up, get off the gear, get her out of that life, and I, I would guess he genuinely wanted to help her. So it was decided that we would go to his van to meet Susan. My controller and I drove out there in his car and parked in the visitor park. It was a bit of a walk to the caravan and also I took a bit of finding. This van park was dodgy back in those days and it really isn't much better today, if I'm being honest. There were your array of petty criminals, down-on-your-luckers and addicts who inherently congregated at these types of places. We eventually find the right van, knock on the door, and the boyfriend opens it. This place was an absolute mess. There was stuff everywhere, clothes, boxes, cooking utensils, you name it, and it was probably in there. He was definitely no sugar daddy. I guess he'd been a John who had grown attached and wanted a young and easily influenced girlfriend. I think he genuinely wanted her to get out of the life, but I think it was more for his benefit than it was for hers. We go inside and Susan is sitting at the table looking like she was about to go to nod. She was really spaced out. The first moment I saw her, my body went into flight mode. It felt like I froze and then had an overwhelming urge to run away as fast as I could. You see, I knew Susan. We'd gone to the same high school. In fact, I'd been a prefect at the school in year 12. Every morning and every afternoon for a full school year, part of my job was to ensure that everyone was wearing the correct uniform in the morning and the correct uniform home, i.e. make sure they were wearing their berets or boaters, had their ties on, had their socks pulled up if they were boys, and if they were girls, wearing the right coloured tights. Every morning and every afternoon for a full year, Susan came through my gate. Every day, she was wearing the wrong coloured tights in the morning which I would dip her about, and every afternoon, she would walk out the gate not wearing her beret, which again, I would dip her about. Still, despite all the attention and the fact that she would have to have known that I was going to dip her, she came through my gate every single day for a full year. I was in my early 20s when I was doing this job, which meant that it was inside 10 years since I'd been at school. What was worse is that she was in my brother's grade as well, so it's not like she was much younger than I was. She glassily looked over at me as I came in and sat down. She had been quite an attractive young woman when I knew her, and whilst she wasn't ugly by any standard, 
the years since school, the turning of tricks, but mostly the drugs, had had their effect on her. This is Michael Susan, I heard my controller say. She puts out a hand to shake mine. Hello, she says. There was not even a flicker of recognition uh, of me as anyone other than Michael Bates. There was no, I know you, or you look familiar, or you look like someone I know. There was zip, nada, nothing. The meeting went on and we discussed what she would be doing, how she would work with me, and who she thought she could introduce me to. We also discussed our cover story as to how I knew her, which of course was basically that I was once a John of hers and we had kept in touch. I was dealing and wanted a new supplier. That meeting took an hour or so, and as we left, I said that I would come around the next day and pick her up. We would go and go through our cover story again and then make some plans on meeting Target. She simply said, okay, and that was that. We were off and running. So my controller and I get in the car and I have a major freak out. I tell him the whole story of how I know her and that she didn't seem to tweak to who I was or that she even knew me at all. We went back to the drug squad and some more, had some more conversations. Look, to be truthful, I wasn't that concerned after those conversations. I didn't think she would recognize me given she was too drug addled. It was agreed that she would keep going, but if she did start to twig, then we would shut the operation down straight away. If she did start to twig, it could put both of us in danger. As an aside, the reason I wasn't too concerned was because of a run-in I had had when I was in uniform with someone I went to school with, who I had known since grade four, right through high school. I was working night shift and it was about 3 a.m. in the morning. Myself and my partner were driving along a main road and we see this guy wearing a hoodie and dark clothes, carrying a satchel, walking along the footpath. He was walking towards us and I was sitting in the passenger seat of the police car. We pulled up alongside him and I asked him to stop, which he did. You can tell here they interacted with police before as he kept his face down whilst he was talking to us. I ended up getting out of the car and walked up to him. I asked him to lift up his face and I asked his name. Mark, he said. As he lifted his face, I couldn't believe it. I knew him and as I said, had been to school with him. Now the fact that he wasn't really a friend but had been part of a group that had bullied me was an interesting dynamic. I said, Mark, don't you remember me? He looked at my face and said, no sir. I said, come on Mark, it's my name. Surely you remember me. He looked at me again, looked at my name tag and seemed to tweak. Oh yes, mister, my surname. I do now. Now it turns out Mark had been using heroin for just about most of his time since leaving school. I highly doubt that if I hadn't prompted him, he wouldn't have remembered me at all. Getting back to that operation, it was decided that I continue to work with Susan. She turned out to be a really good informant and introduced me to a whole bunch of dealers and also three separate syndicates that we dismantled. Whilst we were working together, I did actually try to see if she recognised me by talking about school. I asked her which school she went to and she told me. I then said I had a friend who went there and used my brother's name. She said she kind of knew him but knew his brother better. Her words were, I knew his brother though, he was a real prick to me. Every day he would give me a hard time about my stockings and my barrow. Now look, I still don't know if she put two and two together but I know she didn't give me up. Prior to the operation ending, she actually introduced me to two targets who were selling a lot of H in the area I grew up in. One of whom she knew from school, whom I knew too, and a boyfriend who I also knew because he used to bully me at primary school and high school. But that's for another episode. Stephen, we come to my last major informant, and boy was he a strange one. He had been caught selling speed. He lived in a country town had been part of the organized crime group that rang the local drug trade in the region. He'd left this group some time ago, 
but his pitch to the drug squad was that he could get an in to the group and hence enabled to be dismantled and a large supplier and suspected manufacturer of speed could be taken off the board. Stephen lived outside of town, which made meeting him easier than with most informants. There were very few people that would notice me and my controller constantly going to his house and meeting with him. Stephen was also wildly paranoid. I remember being at one of the local pubs with him where I was living at the time. That is, I was living in the pub. We had put pressure on him to make a meet or introduction happen to someone, anyone really, in the syndicate, as he had not made any to that point, and I'd been in town for maybe three weeks. We were at the pub on the Friday night. Stephen was a, was generally a skittish character, but that night he seemed even more paranoid. Of course, he was drinking and I was paying, which I seemed to do a lot of a Friday and Saturday night. Admittedly, he had given us information that the licensee's son was dealing speed for the syndicate, which was why I was living there and trying to ingratiate myself into the family. Anyway, Stephen and I are sitting at the end of the bar. There was a guy playing his guitar, which was normal on a Friday night, in the front bar. You've got to remember this was a country town, so even in the 90s, there weren't any clubs. Now, he'd been muttering something about the fact that they were on to him and that he didn't want to go through with it anymore. I was trying to calm him down start with and secondly remind him that he had to keep doing this if he wanted to just get out of jail, jail free card. Usually I'd get my controller involved but as it was a small country town and even though we ended up living side by side in a small unit block later it was part of the plan that we didn't know each other and thus being seen together in the pub would have been a big red flag. Here I was trying to convince Stephen that he had to start doing what he said he would and he was falling apart. The conversation was getting terser and terser. At one point, he started started saying, I'm not a grass. I'm not a grass. You can get fucked. I'm not going to grass for you anymore. Just as he says this last sentence, the music stops, doesn't it? To this day, I'm still unsure how much of the sentence was heard by anyone as the music had been very loud. People were yelling and clapping at the time. But I just froze. I started to get very anxious. I thought to myself, he's blown me. My cover's blown. What am I going to do? The wrong people find out. I'm going to be taken out bush, made to dig a shallow grave, and we will be shot and dumped in it. I slowly looked around to see if anyone was obviously looking at us. It didn't seem to be, which was a good start. Everyone was either too drunk or having a good time to notice, I hope. I leaned into Stephen and I said in a very low voice, but still loud enough for him to hear, if you pull that shit again, you won't need to worry about them killing you. I will take you out bush and talk to myself. Now, you, my controller, and I will be out at your place tomorrow morning. And we are going to have a real robust chat about what the fuck you are doing and why you are wasting our time. Finish your drink, get on your bike, and go the fuck home. If I say, hear you say shit like that again, I will smack the shit out of you wherever we are if we are in public. I know you will probably get the better of me in the end of a fight, but you will be sore and sorry to start with. He just looked at me and down at his beer and slowly nodded his head. I actually thought he was going to burr up. Luckily, he didn't. Finished his beer, said goodbye to a few people and left. So the next morning I catch up with my controller, tell her what had happened and myself and her went out to this place and had a really good chat with him. She told him in no uncertain terms what his options were and that he needed to step up or he was going away. Obviously, he said he would step up and start to introduce me. The only person he did introduce me to was a dope dealer, and again, that's another story that we'll get to in a future episode. 
He didn't make any real introductions. He did, however, give me some legitimacy in the town. And from that, I was able to forge some connections of my own. Some of those did raise questions about why I was driving a cop car. And to this day, I don't know if they were joking because it was the Toyota version of the Commodore or if they really suspect, suspected I was an undercover copper. Then there was a song that was playing about the only other operation that they had had in the town 20 years prior. Look, the job was closed abruptly one day. I don't know what happened, but I think information was received that I was blown. One of the squad sergeants turned up out of the blue, told me to pack my things and drove me out of town. I honestly believe it was Stephen doing a backflip and trying to cover his tracks, but I never found out, nor will I ever. As for Stephen, I don't 100% know what happened to him. Well, throughout my time, I've also had a few other informants that would lead me to one-off buys or things like fencing stolen goods from breaking enters. Again, these stories are going to be explored in future episodes uh, of how I went about gathering out ev evidence on them. As you can see, I didn't only have to worry about myself. I had to be aware that I had someone who was putting their life at risk, albeit because they got caught doing something illegal. But they also had my security in their hands and I had to be very careful with what I said to them about how much of my real life I wove into my cover stories. Why would I weave my real life into the cover stories, I hear you ask? Someone once told me that for a lie to be believable, there should be an element of truth to it. This is because it is easier to sell a lie that you believe in and understand. That means that the best lies always have an element of truth. It makes the story easier to remember as well. The only downside is that, that if you give too much away, it could expose something that you didn't intend to. All in all, I would say the informants I dealt with did what they needed to do so they could survive. I genuinely, genuinely believe that for the most part, their indiscretions have been tempered by the information they've provided that has gotten drugs off the street and taken down complete syndicates from the board. Has it stopped heroin use or the sale of heroin? No, of course not. But if what they have done is stop one kid from getting hooked, one user from taking an overdose, someone's child overdosing and dying, then that's an impact that's worth uh, celebrating. Next week, I start exploring the meetings with targets and the buying of drugs from them. Thank you for listening to Whisper in the Shadows, true stories of a real-life undercover cop. I hope you have enjoyed that episode. In the next episode, we'll explore another exciting operation. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Lastly, if you're an ex-COVID operative or undercover police officer, I would like to chat about your experiences or tell your stories on my podcast, and please get in contact by my email, which is on this page.